on the Typical Twist Podcast Network. I'm your host, Jake Unger. Uh, today is Wednesday, May 25th. It's been a while since the last episode. The last episode will have been, let's see, about like nine days ago. So I apologize for the lack of content and coverage of the playoffs over the last nine days. I've been doing a lot of planning on the direction I'd like to take the show in and searching for a potential co-host or two. Uh, planning out some guests in the future that you guys will like. Um, and shout out to Sam for hopping on the last episode. Uh, a lot of you guys had a lot of nice things to say about him and uh, his debut podcasting. So big shout out to Sam. Uh, we plan on recording a lot together in the future. He's a great basketball mind and he's one of the most enjoyable people to discuss the NBA with. But like I said, I have a lot of guests lined up. A lot of different topics that I'm excited to touch on after the season. But until the playoffs are over and until the NBA Finals have been won, I'm probably only going to cover the NBA playoffs. And before we get into the basketball part of the podcast, I'd like to shout out Chris, Tony, and Josh and their episode today. I listened to it today before, I think this morning I listened to it, and it was really good. There's a lot of good stuff in there. They get into a lot of spiritual stuff. They talk about something that's very interesting to me. Uh, that is Judgment Day and the times we're living in. And I think it's really interesting. And I guarantee you, if you give it a listen, you'll enjoy it. And at least it'll provoke some thoughts. So shout out to them. They're doing a great job. And let's get into some basketball. So as I mentioned earlier, I'd like to keep this episode pretty short and sweet. I'm going to start off with the Dallas Mavericks and Golden State Warriors series. Um, We haven't talked since the Phoenix Suns had lost to the Mavericks in the semifinals. And the only thing I'll say about that is I know that the Suns players were hurt. That is one of the worst NBA playoff losses I've ever seen a one seed take. They were my pick to win the championship from probably the fifth week of the season. And to see them kind of go out in that fashion, especially to a team like the Mavericks, who, no disrespect, the Mavericks are a superstar surrounded by shooters and role players against a team that was expected to make it out of the West kind of untouched. So I think they'll be right back next year, depending. It'll be interesting to see what they do with DeAndre Ayton. We can talk about that in the offseason. I have a lot of stuff I'd like to mention about that situation, and it goes pretty deep, but we'll save that for a future episode. We're going to get into the Mavericks and Golden State Warriors series and what I've seen so far. So currently, the Warriors are up 3-1, to one, and... I've taken some notes over the last couple days on things that I thought were important and some interesting things that have led to the Warriors' success in this series. So the first thing I'd like to mention is Steph Curry's rebounding this series and specifically his offensive rebounding on long long jump shots. He's averaging seven rebounds a game, and that's really valuable because a lot of people thought that that's gonna that was gonna be a place the Warriors got taken advantage of in this series uh, with their undersized lineup. Uh, it, it wasn't really the case because Kevon Looney was playable in this series, and we'll get to him in a little bit. Steph's inside scoring has also looked the best it has all season, especially in this series, but that's kind of to be expected when he's going up against post players or post defenders like Maxi Kleba, Dwight Powell, Bertans. Those guys just aren't known as interior defenders. So Steph not only was killing them from three, shooting 47% in the series, he was also able to get to the basket pretty much whenever he wanted. And Steph is an underrated finisher at the basket. And like I said, Kevon Looney has been huge this series. He had that big breakout game 
Uh, I'm pretty sure it was like 25 points and 10 rebounds. That sounds right. And that was in game two or three. I don't have the stats in front of me, but he really emerged. And people thought he was going to be a liability in pick and roll action that Luka and Jalen Brunson would put them in. But it turns out that he was able to use his wingspan, use his limited quickness, and he played disciplined defense against Luka and the Mavericks. So that was a pleasant surprise for the Warriors, and that's going to give them a huge advantage in the NBA Finals. They also held Reggie Bullock to zero points in Game 3, which is huge. Luka's passing him the ball at least 12 times for open shots, and to convert none of those is just devastating to the Mavericks. Andrew Wiggins has done an excellent job on Luka in this series, pressuring him full court, not allowing Luka to make the proper reads that he's usually able to make. He's speeding him up, and it's obviously shown in Luka's production this series. So Wiggins, as a guy that came to the Warriors and was thought to be a liability with his contract in that D'Angelo Russell trade, they turned him into the perfect role player. And I I can't even say role player because he was an all-star starter this year. And a lot of people came at him at the end of the season when he was having some down games and were saying he was undeserving of the all-star starting position. But we're seeing it in the biggest games of the season. He's stepping up, playing elite defense, averaging 19 points a game, second leading scorer uh, on the Warriors this series, shooting excellent from three, 38% and 47% from the field. He's having the best playoff series of his career. I'm really happy to see it. It just goes to show that if you get labeled a bust earlier in your career as a top draft pick, in his case, he was a first overall draft pick by the Cleveland Cavaliers back in 2013, I believe. Or would that that might have been 2015. But a lot of people viewed him as a bust and an inefficient player, and now he is arguably the second most important part of the team uh, and the team strategy, really, to beat the Mavericks. Something about the Mavs shooters this series, when they start to miss shots and they get thrown off the rhythm, they hesitate a lot, and that completely stops their offense. So that's just one thing I thought was pretty interesting. Through the first three games of this series, the Mavericks attempted 26 wide-open three-pointers per game. Now, wide-open means a defender is not within three feet of you, and they've only been able to make 33% of those wide-open looks. So that is a big reason why they're struggling on offense and they're hesitating. Dinwiddie is kind of the only one that's really stepped up next to Luka consistently throughout the first four games. So in game three, some of the Mavericks role players here, Reggie Bullock, Dwight Powell, Bertans, and Kleba all played 105 minutes combined. And in those 105 minutes, those four players combined for five points. So that's not a recipe for success at all. This Mavs team kind of reminds me of the Hawks team last year that made it to the Eastern Conference Finals. Pretty good team surrounding a ball-dominant player, just kind of fizzling out later in the playoffs. We've seen it happen in LeBron's career. We've seen this happen to Kobe. We've seen it happen to a lot of these top two or three players in the league where they just don't have enough talent around them, but they're still able to make a deep playoff run just based on their own greatness. And Luka's greatness is the only reason they didn't get swept and won in Game 4, as he scored 30 points uh, with a near triple-double, only needed one more assist. And it's been three years since we've seen the Warriors in the finals. It was a lot. It was a way different team. Kevin Durant was on that team. They played Kawhi Leonard in the finals. So the NBA is a lot different place since the last time the Warriors have been in the finals. 
and I'm looking forward to seeing it. I expect them to close out the series in five, but if it goes to six, I would expect the Warriors to win on the road in Dallas if that if it comes to that. Oh, before I'm done talking about this series, Wiggins' dunk on Luka was nasty. Brunson defends, snaps it outside to Wiggins. Goes by Bullock. Oh! Successful challenge by Steve Kerr and the Warriors. It's not a offensive foul on Andrew Wiggins, nor is it a defensive foul on Luka Doncic, but it is a good bucket and poster by Andrew Wiggins. Challenge successful, and Wiggins has his third career playoff double-double. So as we get into and break down this Heat versus Celtics series, which is tied 2-2 currently, each team has won a game at home and on the road. None of these games have been particularly close. The closest game was game three, where the Miami Heat basically led the whole game, but the Celtics kind of got it close. They brought it to within one at one point, but the Heat did end up winning game three, 109 to 103. But other than that, the next closest margin of victory was 11 points. And game five is tonight. I'm gonna watch that after I record this. So I'm gonna kind of make this fast so I can go up and catch that full game because I've only been able to watch one full game in this series. So my analysis of this series isn't gonna be as deep as it was the last series, but I'm gonna do my best. So in game three, Bam became the fourth center to lead his team in points, rebounds, assists, steals, and blocks. I can't remember who the other centers were. I'm pretty sure it was Kareem, Wilt, and I'm going to guess Shaq, but I don't know who the third one was. But anyways, that's elite company, and that is awesome to see for Bam. His performance basically determines whether or not this Heat team wins. He's the best defensive player on that team, as well as the best interior scorer. I'd say tied with Jimmy, but it's all about his aggression and whether or not he wants to bring it on a game-to-game -game basis. And this game where he did make that historic stat line, um, Robert Williams wasn't playing. And in the games that Robert Williams and Al Horford have both played, Bam looks like a different player. So I'm gonna have to see him do that against Robert Williams and Al Horford to really see, to really gauge where, where his value is when it comes to an offensive player. There's been some interesting stuff going on with the injuries. You never know who's gonna play for the Celtics and the Heat kind of retaliated in the sense where they said, look, Pat, I think this is Pat Riley's doing, if I had to guess. But since the Celtics aren't really showing who's going to play until basically tip off, they just say some of their guys are questionable. Uh, it's going to be a game time decision. In game three, the Heat listed six of their 14 or excuse me, 15 available roster spots as questionable. So they're kind of giving the Celtics a taste of their own medicine there. It's just some interesting off the court strategy that I'd like to point out. So in game three, uh, the Celtics turned the ball over 23 times. Basically, surface level, looking at this series, if the Celtics don't turn the ball over and give the Heat easy buckets in transition, that's pretty much the only way they lose, right? So the Heat had 19 steals in game three, and Victor Oladipo is a big part of that, chipping in with four in 20 minutes. Love to see him playing well this series. It's awesome. In the two games that the Boston Celtics have lost in this series, they come those two games they combined for 39 turnovers and in the games that they won they only committed 19 turnovers and that's a 20 turnover dis difference that's 10 more each game and like i said that's just extra possessions you're giving the heat specifically in transition where their offense is most efficient obviously the heat struggle in the half court 
and we'll talk a little bit about that. So in game four, the Heat's half-court offense in the first quarter made me want to vomit. They were 0-14 in their first 14 shots. They had one point at the, I think it was the 6-minute and 20-second mark in the first quarter. That's uh, That was a playoff record. I don't know what the record exactly was, but it's not a record that the Heat are necessarily proud of. In the first two games of this series, Jimmy Butler shot 26 free throws, which is huge. Uh, that's just easy points at the line that the Heat don't have to run sets for. And since then, he's only shot two free throws. And he he also only played nine minutes or so, or was it like 12 minutes in game three? But beside, besides that, he's only shot two free throws since then. So, so I think what's causing that is the defensive adjustment that the Celtics have made on Jimmy Butler. They've started putting their center on Jimmy Butler, whether that is... Al Horford in the small ball lineup, whether that's Robert Williams, if he's available, they're daring Jimmy Butler to take that outside shot. And when they call ball screens for Jimmy, they just play under it and dare him to shoot that. And that clogs up all kind of action that the Heat run because the Heat do like to run a lot of high screen rolls for Jimmy. Well, not high screen rolls, just screen rolls at the three point line and maybe a step in. But when you have guys like Al Horford and Robert Williams and Ime Doka who are smart enough just to dare Jimmy to shoot jumpers, that just bogs the Heat's offense down. And that's something me and Sam have talked about off the mic. So in the first quarter, this is going to be a stat that real NBA fans will hear and be like, wow. The Heat had two points in the paint in the first quarter and only two three-point attempts. And the reason that is so crazy, if you don't get how bad that is, if you only have two points in the paint in the first quarter, oh, okay, so you must have been shooting threes, right? No, they only took two threes in the first quarter. Where are their shots coming from? It's just contested mid-range buckets and wild floaters and layups at the basket that are well contested by Robert Williams and Al Horford. Something I also don't understand about Eric Spolstra is when he is giving Duncan Robinson minutes, he's not playing him at the same time with Bam. And you need Bam to unlock Duncan Robinson as a player on the court because his lack of defensive ability isn't a big isn't as big of a liability with Bam on the court because he's able to erase some of those mistakes that Duncan makes. When Duncan does get in there and start getting buckets, it's just negated by the fact that no one on the court can help him on defense. So something that I've kind of dealt with and struggled with in this playoffs is the fact that there's been seven total minutes of clutch basketball in the last 17 playoff games. And to put that into perspective, a clutch minute in the NBA is anything under, I believe it's four minutes within seven points, or is it eight? Wow, I don't know my stuff, but it's it's something like that. So in, in the last 17 games, there's only been seven minutes of clutch basketball played. So there's been a lot of blowouts. Uh, the margin of victory in the last 17 games has been 19.8 points. So nearly 20 point margin of victory in the last 17 playoff games. And something I'd like to say before we get out of here is... It's looking like it's going to be a Celtics and Warriors finals matchup this year. And I love the Heat and what they did this season, but their half-court offense is just not able to do anything against the Celtics. And for that reason, I'm going to have to go with Boston in six and the Warriors in five to play each other in the finals. And uh, before I get out of here, like I said, the only team with a winning record against the Steve Kerr coached Warriors is the Boston Celtics. That's just uh, something we got to keep an eye on because the Celtics seem to have cracked the Warriors code over the years. And 
this is setting up to be a very good finals matchup. So thank you guys for listening. It's going to be a shorter episode today. Like I said, thank you guys for the reviews you've left and uh, the feedback you've given me personally. It really means a lot. Helps me keep going and making these knowing that people really do enjoy them. Like I said, that means a lot. Thank you so much for listening to episode seven of Typical Swish on the Typical Twist Podcast Network. Have a great day. Yeah, blue face, I'm a rolly. Whole lot of ice, no gully. I'm in a place with no police. So that's your girl, she know me. I'm in a place with the homies. And they all know the drill. And they all in the field. I might put them in my will.